I want you guys to all get a little bit comfortable because you don't have one preacher, you have two preachers today. And so, well, thank you. But, uh, but uh, we like to talk apparently. So uh, um, <clears throat> I want to uh, just remind you, uh, Jesus had spent the last three years traveling around the area and he was teaching and he was preaching and he was, he was performing miracles and he had gathered quite a following. A lot of people were coming around and, and uh, following him. But suddenly everything turned, turned different. And it wasn't uh, the messianic king the Jews were hoping for. Uh, he, 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 wasn't trying to get, he wasn't trying to get rid of the Romans. This is what the Jews wanted. They wanted uh, the Messiah to come and just get rid of all these pesky Romans and get them out of there. But this wasn't what Jesus was doing at all. And his claim that he was God was upsetting everything and they couldn't ignore it. And so they had Jesus arrested and they uh, offered him up this mock trial. He was sentenced to be put to death upon a Roman cross. And Jesus did die on that cross. His disciples watched him from hiding was what was happening. And everything seemed to be coming to an end when Jesus's lifeless body was placed into a tomb and then they sealed the entrance shut. Yet three days later, early in the morning, the women were going to prepare the body of Jesus for burial. And they noticed that the tomb was now open. And not only was it open, but it was empty. Jesus had risen from the dead. For 40 more days, Jesus lived among his followers before he ascended into heaven. And 10 days after that, the Holy Spirit came down and fell upon all the believers. And they were changed in an instant. They started preaching boldly and they were declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, the momentum started and the church was starting and new believers were starting to come and follow them. And it started the church as we know it today. And the book of Acts <clears throat> describes the life of this new church. Acts chapter 2 in particular uh, shares how the earliest church functioned together. And so that's how we're going to start with today, Acts chapter 2. If you have the, the word with you today, it's Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It's also in your handout. <clears throat> this is what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe as of many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Story for you, there was a successful businessman. He was, he was starting to grow old and he knew that it was time that he had to pick a successor for his business to take over. But instead of choosing one of his directors or even one of his own children, he decided to do something different, and he called all the youngest executives around uh, together. 
And he said, it's time for me to step down and to choose the next CEO. I have decided to choose one of you. The young executives were shocked, but the boss continued. He said, I'm going to give each of you a seed today. It's a very special seed. I want you to plant, take that seed and I want you to plant it. I want you to water it. I want you to fertilize it and come back here one year from today and show me what you have grown with the seed that I have given you. Then I will judge the plants that you bring and the one that I choose will be the new CEO. One of the employee's uh, young directors was named is Jim. Jim took his seed home and excitedly he told his wife the whole story and she helped him find a pot and the soil and the compost and everything he needed for that little seed. And every day he would watch it and every day he would watch to see if it had started to grow. About three weeks, some of the other executives began to talking about their seeds and the plants that were starting to grow. And Jim kept checking his, but nothing ever grew. Three weeks, four weeks, five weeks went by and nothing. By now, others were talking about their plants, but Jim didn't have a plant and he felt like a failure. Six months went by and still nothing in Jim's pot. He just knew he had killed it. And everyone else had trees and tall plants, but he had nothing. And Jim didn't say anything to his colleagues. However, he, was, he just kept watering. He just kept fertilizing the soil. He just needed that seed to grow. A year finally went by and all the young executives of the company <coughs> brought their plants to the CEO for that inspection that day. And Jim told his wife that he wasn't going to go. There's no use. I'm not going to take an empty pot. But she asked him to be honest about what had happened. And Jim felt sick to his stomach. He was going to be uh, the laughing stock. This is going to be the most embarrassing moment of his entire life. But he knew she was right. And so he carried his empty pot to the boardroom. When Jim arrived, he was amazed by all the variety of plants that had been grown by the other executives. They were beautiful and they came in all shapes and sizes. And Jim put his empty pot on the floor. And many of his colleagues laughed at him. Some even felt sorry for him. When the CEO arrived, he surveyed the room and greeted all of these young executives and Jim just tried to hide in the back. My, what great trees and plants and flowers that you have grown, said the CEO. And today I will appoint one of you the new CEO. All of a sudden the CEO spotted Jim way back there in the back of the room with his empty pot and he ordered Jim to come forward and he was terrified he thought, this is the day. The CEO knows that I'm a failure. Maybe he's going to fire me right here and now in front of everybody. But when Jim got to the front, the CEO asked him what had happened to his seed. And so Jim humbly told him the story. The CEO asked everyone to sit down beside Jim, or except for Jim. He looked at Jim and then announced to everybody, behold, this is your new chief executive officer. His name is Jim. 
And Jim couldn't believe it. He, he couldn't even uh, grow this own simple seed. He was a failure. How could he possibly be the next CEO? And then the CEO said, one year ago today, I gave everyone in this room a seed. I told you to go home and take that seed and to plant it and to fertilize it and to water it and to bring it back to me today. But I gave all of you boiled seeds. They were all dead. It was not possible for you to grow anything from them. All of you except Jim have brought me trees and plants and flowers. And when you found that seed wouldn't grow, you substituted it for another seed than the one I gave you. Jim was the only one with the courage. He was the only one with the honesty enough to bring me a pot with nothing growing. As a pastor, I could tell you story after story after story of people that I have countered along the way. And I could tell you people that started off their, their uh, journey with Jesus with excitement and uh, they just, they couldn't wait to follow him. They couldn't wait to get out into the world and to follow Jesus. But somewhere along the line, the storms of life came. Somewhere along the line, just the pressures of life came and, and uh, they lost their faith and they just went back to their comfort zone. I could tell you about others that <coughs> never seemed to take root at all. No matter how much they were witnessed to, no matter how much they were served by other people, uh, they just never seemed to flourish at all. I could tell you stories of those that seemed like they were growing in their faith and year after year, but then someone came into their life with a different idea of what truth actually was. And they started following them. Think about the people that you know, friends and family both start their relationship with Jesus and they're all excited. And there's this feeling of, of joy when we first give our lives over to Christ. Do you remember looking in their face and they just looked different? There was something different about them. Go out in the hallway and look at the faces of those that were baptized. I tell you, if you want to see joy, look no further than Sue Chase's face as she came up out of that water. That was joy. Because following Jesus is joyful. It's exciting. Until it isn't. Until then, when life happens, we take our eyes off of Jesus and we start focusing again on ourselves. And if people have failed to establish those deep roots or sustain a consistent practices of their faith, that joy that we had when we first started following Jesus just kind of seems to disappear. Because now the emotions have faded, the novelty of this grace, this saving grace has worn off. And I've seen it too many times when the heart of flesh is at war with the spirit. And when life gets hard or when things don't go the way that we have planned, we reduce our faith back to some experiences or maybe a memory or emotions of the past. We want the return of yesteryear. We want things to be just like they used to be. We want to recreate the point in our life where we, we put our trust into Jesus and we forget 
that Jesus is still with us and he's still pushing us forward. Jesus never pulls us into the past. And so if you're taking notes, we have just some fill-ins there. The first one is make no reductions. Don't reduce your faith to a particular moment, to a particular event or, or time. See, we have to sustain the momentum that we have in Christ. After we come to know him or after we're baptized and we have that kind of euphoric moment in our life, we have to make sure that faith is sustained. It needs to take us to the ends of our life as well. So how do we do that? How about when we fully give our lives over to Jesus? How do we stay at that level It's a good question because unless you become a a monk or join a convent, life happens, right? You still have to live your life. And and guess what? Neither of those are going to help you much either. I've watched every episode of Call of a Midwife. And I know those nuns on that show fight all the time, right? (laughs) They're talking or we're talking today about the sustaining grace of Jesus, a grace that is given to us to sustain us on our journey, even when life gets tough. But often we reduce our relationship and our experience with Jesus with one thing. Sometimes for some of us, we reduce it to a singular experience. For me, it was uh, promise keepers. It was the early 2000s, uh, St. Louis, Missouri, if you're not familiar with Promise Keepers, it was a big arena event for Christian men to come full of music and preaching. And I have to tell you, besides my salvation or my sanctification moment, this was the moment where I experienced Jesus the most. It was at the Savas Center in St. Louis, Missouri. And it was as close to this Pentecostal experience that I've ever had. The close to like the tongues of fire were coming on to me that day. The whole weekend progressed me closer and closer and closer to Jesus. And at the end, 16,000 men together saying, how great thou art. And I was undone. 16,000 guys around me just suddenly disappeared. And it was just me Jesus. And it was this great experience until I came home. And I went Sunday back at church and the service wasn't hitting on all cylinders. At least it wasn't as powerful as it was back in Promise Keepers. What an amazing, powerful experience. Now it's just normal. And I kind of felt let down. Here I was back home and suddenly I didn't feel God anymore. Why couldn't I feel God like I did there? How come God wasn't showing up in Peoria like he showed up in St. Louis? The excitement had faded and now reality was hitting. Some of us reduced Jesus to a behavior. Maybe it wasn't that long ago or uh, that you were saved or if you kind of remember back, I'm sure as soon as you you were saved, you started to be convicted Uh, maybe a few behaviors in your life and you got rid of some things. I know I got rid of plenty of stuff. I remember about a month or two after I was saved, I finally got the courage to speak to a Christian coworker of mine. 
about being born again. And I said, hey, Brand, I don't know if you know this, but I became a Christian back in July. And he said, Brian, you didn't need to say anything. I just knew it because I've watched your behavior change. And in the time since then, I need to be honest with you, I faded. I faded quite a lot. I've fallen and i reverted back to the old ways. Why? See, when we start questioning, when life happens and uh, we watch some of our some well-meaning preacher maybe on YouTube and they tell us that, well, you probably weren't saved in the first place. And we start questioning ourselves. We start questioning God. For some of us, we reduce our journey of faith to the knowledge that we have gained. And we think that our faith is sustained by, by going to classes and, and uh, furthering our knowledge. The bad thing is, it's necessary for us to gather knowledge, but we can't put everything and hang everything on that. See, sometimes we reduce our faith to just acquiring the right interpretation of the Bible or arguing about what is the right theological doctrine. Knowledge about Jesus is good. The Bible is good, but knowledge without the right heart is always going to leave us wanting. See, we become all bark and no bite. Our faith is built on a house of cards because there's no backbone to it. We're not doing our faith. We're just learning about our faith. And sometimes even our own faith becomes a stumbling block. Our spiritual lives become that stumbling block. We believe that if we're just spiritual enough, if we just find that time to get alone, if we just uh, increase our time that we read our Bibles, if I could just pray a little bit more, pray a little bit louder, pray a little bit longer, or volunteer enough, that's going to sustain me in my walk with Christ. It won't. At least not by itself. I know too many people that are so spiritually minded that they become no earthly good. They have become obsessed with their own spiritual disciplines. See, the invitation to follow Jesus is personal. It was for you. He meant it when he asked you to come and see and follow me. It was for you. But that invitation has never been private. That invitation is supposed to be lived out in community. You see, there's nothing wrong with any of these things, there's nothing wrong with any of these experiences or behavioral change or gathering knowledge or our spiritual disciplines. But let's not reduce our faith to any one of these things. Pastor Callie is going to come up. I can't wait for you to hear the heart of our discipleship pastor as she tells us about a life of enveloping all of these into our spiritual practice. Well, good morning, church. As Pastor Brian just mentioned that we too often have reduced our faith, our practice of faith by one thing. But what if we were to increase, increase our faith by a combination of things? That's when we will truly see and experience God in multiple ways with others. Rather than just living on our own for Christ, we can live with others for Christ. And God is expanded when we combine the gift of grace given to others, or how about this, 
the gift of grace given from others to us. Point two is the means of grace or the ways of grace in your outline. The means of grace is fellowship, prayers, spiritual disciplines, and communion. They're so vital for the life of the believer and for the health of our church, of any church. As well as methods of the means of grace, what I've come to find in this journey of grace is that people need people, amen? People need people. God and the sacrifice of the cross plays a huge, huge role. But the reality is people need people. This is gonna be really, really hard for introverts, but it's okay, you got this, I believe in you. Engaging in one element of grace isn't boiled down to the relationship with Jesus. It's living out the relationship and that relationship of Jesus with the people that he encountered. He helped the lost, he helped the needy, the widows, the sick, and he held them accountable to a, a, a standard that they could sustain. And we read about these accounts over and over and over, the way that he spoke to his disciples and the way that he shared his story in parables. Practice makes perfect was coined by Vince Labardi. So how many Packer fans in here? Or non-Packer fans? We know who Vince Labardi is. There's a yes. He wanted to convey that regular exercising of a skilled player was the way to become proficient in that skill, especially encouraging them when it got really, really hard. In turn, he believed that repetition, doing it over and over and over again, would build sustainability that would later carry on a great legacy. So that's why practicing together is what ought to motivate the body of the believers, all of us. Because when we practice in faith what God is going to do, it expands the righteousness of God, the favor of God, the justice and the mercy and compassion of God. We will truly experience and cooperate with God when we practice together. So prayer is one example of a means of grace. When we come together, when we pray together, we're not manipulating God into answering our prayers. What we're doing is we're living in the middle of God's will for that prayer to be answered, that his will will be done. Scripture uh, says in 1 John chapter five, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, he bends down and he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, then whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Prayers of a righteous person has great powers as it is working. We can get discouraged and think that God is not moving, that God is not working, and perhaps we stop watering our seed. We stop nurturing our soil because we don't see it instantaneously. And oftentimes, God gives us seeds in the dark, but we know that they will eventually grow. We have a faith for that. So let me tell you this. Don't trade your seed whatever it is, for temporary growth or artificial fruit. Nurture the seed. 
Just like the people that Brian was talking about, the CEO, nurture your seed, because in due time, you will reap a harvest. Don't boil God down to one prayer or many prayers, because he's so much bigger. He's cosmic. He's greater than that one prayer. And out of our prayers, we will find different avenues, different means of grace. Nature and practice of this means of grace, these many means of grace, in part, is taking intentional and meaningful relationships to the next level for the expansion of God. And God downloads creativity and practical ways that we can model the church of Acts, the early church. I'm so thankful. There's a gentleman in this, in this room uh, that he did not give up on a prayer my friend Steve Crawford, he prayed for the seed that God gave him. It's a mission and it's a vision, something near and dear to his gifting and calling to be used in the body of believers. Servanthood. He didn't boil, this is not gonna be boiled down to just Steve. He desires to disciple others and serve others. God gave Steve Crawford a task and this was his task. Think big, every day. Now it's similar to our think big serving opportunities within the local church and that's what it is, but this is his ministry and this is what he shared with me, that this ministry will be a group of volunteers who will use their God-giving skills and abilities to assist others with their project needs. And he's gonna then likewise mentor those within the group and disciple, build relationships with those that they need a project worked on. So I'll boil it down to this. Let's say that your microwave is not working and you wanna fix your microwave, your dishwasher, your refrigerator, whatever, whatever the need is. And you say, you know what? I cannot afford a new appliance, but I've, I, I can supply the parts. So Steve's gonna come in and he's gonna say, awesome, I'm gonna help you with this, but I'm gonna go and find someone else that wants to serve in this capacity. They want to figure out how to make this appliance work. So the three of them are gonna to pray together, they're gonna to disciple each other, and they're gonna in turn fix the appliance, fix the need, whatever it is. Now, the cool thing about this is, that is God's math. He is multiplying disciples, leadership, learning, serving. This is such an important, vital asset that we need for the church those being devoted to each other and loving on each other, and then they're supplying the needs that need to be fixed. So this is a phenomenal and a fantastic idea. But here's the cool thing about it. It's biblical. It's biblical. To take care of people, widows, something like that. Here's a picture we'd love to share with you. It's the first, very first infancy picture of the communal projects with Renell. Now, I don't wanna get ahead of myself because this is not my baby, this is Steve's baby, and he is going to share that. He has created a manifesto specifically for this ministry. It's the structure of this ministry because checks and balances very much matter and it's important to put those into practice. Jesus taught and empowered both men and women to put into practice what he knew of God and what he heard from God. These men and women Jesus encountered had no formal uh, religious training. They were just ordinary people on fire to serve God. They were devoted to each other 
And this is essentially some of the same characteristics that Steve Crawford is hopeful to continue to develop within our local church. On the back of your communication card, if you are interested in this, please mark your card and Steve will get a hold of you. He is ready to get this going. I'm so excited to see how God is gonna build the church in that capacity. I'm not saying that it hasn't been done before, but there's gonna be structure to it and he is your guy. So back in March, I preached a similar message about building the church. Do you remember that? We all rose, we came to the platform, we had our little stone, we put it on a bench. We were so excited. And in essence, that was the representation of us coming together regarding Jesus as our chief cornerstone. And here's the deal, he still is and he always will be. But what we declared that day was the commitment to follow him and to actually build his church. And how we do that is living in consistent, intentional, communal practices of nurturing grace. That's our third point. The practice of this nurturing grace. The most formative way of nurturing grace is following the early church methods, doing life together, together with God. I'm gonna drop a, a, a Jewish word in the Hebrew context, koinonia. I'm pretty sure you've heard of that before. It's the Christian fellowship body of believers with special attention to intimate spiritual communion and participation of sharing in common religious commitment. It's a spiritual community, koinonia. It's the disciples with each other and with their God. This is essentially how they witnessed God in the early church. It was necessary. It was sustaining. It was healthy. It was Christ-centered and it was instituted by God. In the passage that we were camping on, uh, Brian shared it this morning, is Acts 2.42 through verse 47, and I'll read it real quick. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled at the many, awe, or many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need, and every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And my favorite, favorite, favorite is the ending. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all people, the Lord added to their numbers daily of those who were being saved. What we see is just ordinary people doing life together. We see them shape their lives around God, not just their one thing. And in these ways, they saw God together. Firstly, and this is in your handout, they are together. They're always together. They experience God together. They met regularly together. They are vulnerable together. They practice the faith together. They learn together and they witness together. And as we practice this, we also have to practice what we preach. We must connect in communal and missional ways and methods in order to create the journey of grace for ourselves and for others to experience God. 
What we will witness in doing this. This is what our church will witness when we do this. There's four characteristics out of that passage. This is what we'll witness. We'll see loving fellowship. When we become deeply devoted to one another, we will utilize and understand what the early church did, how they were shaped, and how they sustained their relationships with together with Jesus Christ, simply by just gathering together. <laughs> so doing laundry, you guys can come to my house and help me do my laundry, together. Going to the park with kids in your life group, showing up for people at their most important times of their life, just being together. Number two, we will see biblical enrichment and nourishment. What we find in this passage that the apostles, like I said, they had no credentials to actually become teachers or leaders. They just recognized they loved Jesus. They recognized that they were taught by Jesus. He was with them. And it was clear to them that they had the power and the authority because they were literally with Jesus seeing these things. They had experienced being with Jesus and he was taught directly by him. So for these reasons, the new converts were very careful to listen and to put into practice the apostles' teachers, or teachings. Here's the cool thing about it. They ate together. They had like a cookout. I can read the Bible and be completely full, but my stomach will still growl. Can I get an amen on that? They broke bread with glad and sincere hearts. The beautiful thing about eating together is solidarity. It's unity. It's intimate, deep relationships. There is an inclusion. Social barriers drop when a crock pot comes out, right? When that crock pot's out, no one's fighting. <laughs> you come to the table and that is something that we have together as human beings, we get hungry and we wanna be fed. The cool thing is the early church, it was more than being fed. It was a sacrificial religious activity. When they came together for a time of a meal, it was a holy place. It was a sacred space. And prayers and thanksgiving was experienced because of what Christ had done for them. It was a foretaste of heaven and Christ had said, you will eat and drink at my table and in my kingdom. Third point, we will witness vibrant worship. Now I'm not talking solely about singing. That is one part of worship. But true worship is the act of adoration and great reverence to the Lord. So we worship the Lord in many ways. We worship in singing, we worship in um, being out in God's country and just seeing the magnificent mountains and, and fishing and playing softball and having fun together, going camping together. In this passage, it's implied that they were always together in prayer and in songs. They spent a lot of time in social interactions. Fourthly, we will see one of our characteristics is word and indeed outreach. So the writer of Acts is Luke, and he describes the community of believers in Jerusalem that they had everything in common. Luke is describing a voluntary sharing of some possessions on an as-need basis. So it's just like when your neighbor wants to borrow you know, hedge trimmers, you, you 
you lend them the head trimmers because there's a need knowing that you'd get them back, hopefully that you would get them back, but you'd hold these things in common. And what that meant was you would never feel or be alone and there would never be a need that wasn't met because you're always together doing things, things, doing things together that you had in common and they served each other in these needs and we will practice likewise. Beginning fall, we're gonna start creating life groups and we will have all of these things in common. We will serve together. We would serve at Dragonland. Brad serves selflessly in this church and I'm so grateful for, for him and he does it so quietly. We'll serve our schools and we'll serve, Refuge has served and we'll serve Molly. Did we share a picture of Molly yet? We sent cotton candy our life group sent cotton candy, or our women's Bible study sent cotton candy to um, the kids in Africa, and it was like, they'd never seen anything before. They put it on their tongue, and it just melted, like, what? I was like, yeah, it was pretty awesome. Our NDI board is just beginning these infancy stages of how we can bless our community, and I'm so excited just to see that, because I want, <laughs> I discern, this is more than thinking or feeling, I discern that we will become a church on wheels, that we will go out to the community and that we will bless people. Maybe not necessarily monetarily, but just praying with them. What if, what if we prayed for our EMS workers? They go through a lot. Our police officers, our caseworkers, our school teachers. What if we went out in the community and we, and we prayed for them? We went to their, to their business or organization and we just said, hey, I don't need to know, I just wanna pray for you. Here's, here's some coffee, here's some donuts, and just bless, bless these organizations. Could we be the church on wheels? I absolutely believe we can do that. God's calling is instrumental in bringing people to Christ. And Luke was careful to point this out in verse 47 of God's sovereignty. He is faithful because they were faithful. He added to their numbers daily. New converts shared the good news of Jesus Christ because of this group. And Luke maintained this viewpoint on the conversion through the book of Acts and all through the gospels. And we can learn to do this as well. We can increase each day as the Lord adds to our church those who are being saved. People that are literally saying yes to Jesus Christ are wanting to be involved. They're wanting to feel belong, like they belong and we have the opportunity of saying, yes, you do. You're welcome to my table. And that's what the early church did. They worked at it and they worked at it hard. It's nothing like what we struggle with in our time today. Now there's similar situations. There's disease, death, financial burdens, but we can all agree it's pales in comparison to the early church, right? It pales in comparison to biblical times. But here's the thing, the commonality that the early church shares with us is this one thing, devotion to God, be devoted to God. And we're essentially recognizing that we're forever partnered with God. We're forever partnered with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. We are the bride and he is the bridegroom and he is coming back and we've got to fix our veil. You know what I'm saying? We got to be ready. And for a healthy marriage to work, we must work at it. If you forget everything I've said today, for a healthy marriage to work, you must 
work at it. And we are the bride and we gotta get to work. The special diverse community teaches us to work on this. Spirit enabled relationships are necessary as we support one another in the fully surrendered life, the spirit filled life. When we deeply care for one another, we discover the rich love that is our true identity in Christ. I know who I am because of how I serve you. And this journey, this pathway that we're on, spiritual growth will become a result. Discipleship, spiritual transformation and holiness. A spirit-filled life. I'm gonna ask a group of special people to join me this morning to come up and just share life with me. I wanna share this quote from the book called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's a phenomenal book. And he says this, the physical presence of other Christians is the source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living in common Christian life with others Christians, praise God's grace from the bottom of his and her heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare this, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in the community of Christian brethren. It is by God's grace that we get to do life together and that we ought to thank God for that. So here is my challenge. I just love how they're setting the table. Here's my challenge. Are you complaining about the lack of community that you're in? Or, flip side of the coin, are you working at developing a deep relationship with one another or others in your church or circles of influence? Is your table open this week to have dinner with people that are not like you? That's hard. That's a challenge, right? What barriers are keeping you from doing that? So look at this beautiful, diverse group of people. We have a lot in common. It doesn't look like that from the outside, but we have a lot in common. You know what our commonality is? That we love Jesus, that we wanna do life with each other. We wanna practice the faith out loud with each other. It's not about the TV shows that we watch. It's not about where we shop. It's not about who we even voted for. The commonality, the thing that we have in, in, in common together is that we love God, 